Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. everyone. It is the 25th of January. I am Dr. Peter Kapsner, and this is Mornings Without Carmen. Not just this morning, but it's going to be for the entire week coming up. Delighted to be with all of you talking about all things Kingdom of God related with the news and so many of the great guests that come in week in and week out and help us interpret so uh, the dimensions of our lives through the lens of, of the person that we serve, that being Jesus Christ, the King of Heavens. Delighted to be in studio with Paul Perot as well, faithful as ever. Paul Perot, you know, Carmen gets these weeks off, Paul. Do you, do you get time off like this? Well, I just took some time off uh, about two weeks ago, actually. You did? Okay, yeah. well, that's good. good. And, and she's always concerned that you and I are going to somehow break the show together. I was trying to think this weekend how many different ways we could potentially break her show. Are did... you trying to break it and thinking, <laughs> okay, we could do it this way? Well, I, I'm I'm sort of plotting hope- it out. Oh, I'm hopeful the power of suggestion does not actually play play itself out this morning. But uh, it, it just it's good to be in studio with you. Good to be again with all the listeners uh, and and back in this host chair as well. And we've got a big first hour ahead with Zach Jenkins. I know he joins us every Monday morning to, to talk all things COVID and the different updates that are necessary because things do seem to change and shift week in and week out as the virus mutates. So does our response to it. And there's just lots to talk about with Zach. And of course, Adam Carrington is a regular contributor to the show as well. We'll talk about politics with him in the second half of this hour. And as we do, sometimes these news headlines just get a little difficult. They get a little uh, weighty. They can kind of weigh us down a bit. And I think so often about how much it helps to just be bathed in the word of God. I know Carmen covers the word quite a bit in here. And I was listening to a song that I came across not too long ago from an artist, Sarah Groves. She's a friend of ours. I've had a chance to study the scriptures with her. She is somebody who is deeply anchored in the scriptures. And she has a song called The Word. And and it, it goes through the fact that Jesus was, of course, the word made flesh dwelling among us and, and that we really do uh, serve a king of an eternal kingdom that we had a chance to see on this earth. So unusual for a God among all the different gods that have been worshiped over all of these thousands of years, the one that became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And in this song of the word, she has this bridge that we're going to start out our show with here this morning that just gets into so many of the scripture passages that are probably familiar to us and help us sort of bathe ourselves in scripture. So Paul, let's cue this up and just kind of, as you're listening this morning, be thinking about what it means to be bathed in the word and all of these beautiful promises that Sarah Groves has for us this morning. All the ground that I have covered Like seek ye first What a verse We are pressed but not crushed Perplexed but don't despair We are persecuted but not Abandoned We are no longer slaves We are daughters and sons And when we are weak We are very strong And neither death nor life Nor present nor future Nor depth nor height Can keep us from the love of
Up next, Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University will talk COVID and more Sarah Groves right now. It is nine minutes past the top of the hour, and that is the music introducing Zach Jenkins, who is an epidemiologist, a specialist in infectious diseases from Cedarville University. Good morning, Zach. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. You're in early at the university, from what I understand. What uh, prompted the visit to go so early into those hallowed halls of academia? Uh, well, January and February are my, my two big uh, teaching months, so I, I actually coordinate both our infectious disease courses for our PharmD program here on campus. That's amazing. So what do you cover in infectious diseases? Are these people that are obviously wanting to become pharmacists or they want to become physicians? What, what do you cover in such classes? Uh, so, so these folks are people who want to become pharmacists, but we get into uh, all sorts of things from viruses to bacteria to fungi to parasites. And we talk about how to... Uh, basically see what a patient might be infected with, but also how to treat those patients. <laughs> yeah, that's a little uh, different field. I, I, I'm sure it can get a little gruesome at certain times, right, Zach, in terms of uh, what, what's troubling us in this world, including COVID. It is amazing that it has stuck with us this long. I know for sure when it first sort of emerged on the scene around this time last year in the United States, I, I remember thinking, oh, sort of by fall, that will be back to some semblance of normal. But here we are now in the latter part of January, and we are not really even that close to normal. And some of it is that COVID just continues to mutate. And there are new strains coming out from different corners of the world, it seems, whether it be South Africa, whether it be Brazil, in the United Kingdom. And we have these vaccines, obviously, coming out as well. What do we see in terms of this back and forth between the vaccines and their efficacy against these different strains that are emerging on the scene? Well, well, the good news is um, the, the studies that we've been looking at so far, they are preliminary, but what they're suggesting is that these vaccines are actually still active against the new variants that we're seeing, in particular the UK variant, which has gotten a lot of press. And that, that's important to consider because when you look at the trend that we've seen uh, with cases and hospitalizations, as a, at least in aggregate with this country, we have not reached really a plateau with this particular phase that we dealt with. And why that's important is if we end up having a variant that is more infectious, it could cause another big spike. So if the vaccines are indeed helpful against that, uh, you can see where there'd be a little bit of utility. With uh, looking at these mutations, are we more concerned with how infectious they might be? Because I, I know that when it first emerged in the UK, they talked about that the transmission rate was quite a bit higher than maybe the first version of COVID. But now I saw over the weekend as well that they're concerned that the mortality rate or just how infectious it is, is a concern. Are we looking more at transmission rate at, at the level of mortality associated? What would you say is the more important metric or are both sort of hand in hand? I, I do think it's important to, to consider both. And I've actually seen some of those reports you're referencing describing that maybe this is a bit more um, fatal in comparison to some of the other strains that we've seen. But I'd say some of the data on that is probably a little bit too preliminary, to be honest with you, uh, maybe a little bit too infrequent as far as what we have compared to what we do know, which is that that strain happens to be about 70 percent or so more infectious. So I'd say the jury's still a little bit out on mortality. Considering uh, what we typically see with most viruses, though, when something does become more fatal, what we do recognize is that it tends to fizzle out, so to speak, in the general population. It's not a very um, good Thing for viruses to be extremely fatal because it kind of defeats their prerogative, which is to spread. 
And that's my understanding Absolutely. when something like Ebola hits the scene, right, is it's so vicious and so devastating, but it does t- tend to flame itself out rel- relatively quickly. Exactly. So it, it's in a virus's best interest just with how, how they've been designed um, but, but to basically uh, base, to spread, spread as much as they can without causing a huge amount of impact. Zach, is a virus like this, is it a living thing? I've, I've wondered about this. Is it a living thing like an organism or a human being is a living thing? Because I hear different reports. We, we talk about the virus sort of learns and mutates as if it is a living thing. But do we categorize it in the same sort of way? Um, they are very different than bacteria and, and fungi, which we would traditionally consider to be alive. So a lot of biologists will tell you that viruses are probably not real because they're not technically made out of cells. They're actually smaller than cells, and they use cells to reproduce more of themselves. Um, so if you want to liken them to something uh, from science fiction, for example, they're probably more similar to androids than anything else. <laughs> I think that's a great comparative. Well, in the United States, I, I wouldn't exactly call it a stable situation, but it does seem to maybe not be on the increase and not quite as many hotspots. So give us a little update on what's happening in the United States and what we see where we are in, in the course of the virus. Sometimes you hear that we're in the first inning or the second inning. Where are we in terms of it, it, its transmission and what we see over the next couple of months? Well, I think if we're going to use the uh, baseball uh, analogy, I'd probably liken it to somewhere uh, maybe like the sixth or seventh inning is probably where I'd, I'd place it. Um, so I, I think we're still like in, in some some of the rough spaces uh, in this particular season. We're not out of this wave. And if you kind of go back and look at the data, when we talk about waves of the virus, you can see that we had a peak last spring. Uh, then we dropped down for a while and we had another peak that occurred over the over the uh summer and then we of course had one this this particular fall which has lasted all the way until now um it, it, we may actually see a fourth wave that is a possibility but i'd say it's looking like it will be less impactful that that's a very positive direction to consider as we think about public health and, and our different measures we are seeing hospitalizations and um cases drop which is very encouraging there are still hot spots in the country though. there are places that the icus are still slammed um, so, so that's something that we still have to kind of be cognizant of. Cognizant of. So I, I saw that there is about 25 million confirmed cases in the United States, and, and some people are suggesting that that may represent uh, even just a tenth of the actual cases that have happened. That seems a little high to me, but the people are suggesting it could be up to 250 million people have actually had this virus. If that's the case, then it would seem to me that we would be much closer to, to something like a natural herd immunity. Do we have any way to verify any of these kind of, kind of numbers or are people sort of shooting in the dark? Um, I actually have not heard that particular um, statistic, but what I will reference is what the CDC did share during the COVID vaccine discussions. So based on their epidemiologic data, and this is back in November, so we have to kind of put that in context, um, they actually had suggested that at the time, maybe about somewhere between 10 to 15 percent of the population had actually been exposed to COVID. So if we have 330 million people, that obviously wasn't very close. And at that time, it's also important to recognize the reported cases that we were seeing based on tests were actually much lower than that 10 to 15 percent. So their, their estimation is, is assuming that people are not necessarily always getting tested. Um, but when they actually track all sorts of things like uh, purchases of thermometers and, and things like this kind of helps them build those models that make those estimates. Um, I, I'd say we're probably not in a case where we're close to like uh, two thirds or three quarters of the country having been exposed. That, that's just my, my rough estimate. 
Well, Zach, I don't know about you, but I have not been able to find a thermometer in the store for I don't know how many months now. <laughs> they just seem right. to be sold out uh, all the time. In turn, back to the variants then, regardless of how many cases we have had, both documented and undocumented in the United States, is there some sort of buzz about whether these variants will easily evade maybe any sort of antibodies that we have, whether created naturally through having the virus or through the vaccine? It seems like the one out of South Africa, people are concerned that maybe that has a chance to get right through the antibodies that have been built up. So the reality is with any virus, there's always the possibility that it will evade post immunity in some way, shape or form. We have lots of ways that we develop immunity. Some of that is with uh, the antibodies that basically bind to the virus to kind of neutralize it. And the neutralizing antibody is probably the most important thing to consider as far as the impact of decreasing that that infectivity. Um, but there, there are also other antibodies that kind of sequester things off to off to the side um, that identify your body to really attack those things. So there, there's a lot of different things to kind of consider. Um, we, we do know for sure that with SARS-CoV-2 that we do see some kind of evasion. But the, the encouraging thing is, again, based on the studies we've seen, we, we know that the vaccine seems to not really be as impacted by that at least at this point in time, with any of the variants that we're really thinking about. Mm. Such helpful updates from epidemiologist Zach Jenkins joining the program regularly to talk all things COVID. Zach, when we come back in a minute, I want to ask your opinion about some of the recent data that's coming out that in terms of your gut bacteria, it might have an impact on the severity of your experience with COVID, as well as where we are in the vaccine distribution strategy in our country. So more to come in just a minute. Stay with us with Zach Jenkins. Welcome back to the show, chatting with Zach Jenkins about some of the different COVID headlines. And Zach, I see that the distribution news gets updated each week. And I hear, again, conflicting reports about when it might be available to a certain segment of the population, when it might be available to the general population. I I seem to remember reports that maybe by February or March, more of the general population could line up to get inoculated. But now they're talking about potentially summer. So where are we with the distribution news of the vaccines? Uh, to be honest, it's been kind of a rough go. Uh, so we actually, as we look across all states, I think all of us are in a slightly different place. West Virginia, of course, is kind of being lauded as being very effective with getting their vaccine into people right now. I think their success rate um, as far as distributing things and getting the vaccines administered is somewhere in like the 70 to 80 percent range. Um, many other parts of the country are actually around 30 percent or lower. Um, so what that means is we actually have vaccine in those those situations sitting on a shelf. And if it sits on a shelf, of course, you have to think about um, getting it transferred around to get into people. So there's a time lag. And so that that's the real challenge for us here is we try, try to target herd immunity. Um, I think on top of that, the other thing that's important to recognize is that there is a shortage of vaccine at the moment. And that's not just for the U.S., that's across the world. And, and one of the problems there is you have one manufacturer or one drug company, so to speak, that's making vaccine for multiple countries. And we do have one distribution center, for example, for Pfizer, I think that's up in Michigan is my understanding. But but even so, we don't own 100% of that vaccine. So, so we are all kind of competing for these limited resources. What we're doing is we're trying to target the most at-risk people. So we're starting with healthcare providers and, and people in nursing facilities. They've been identified as some of the higher-risk people because of likelihood of exposure and severity of the illness if they do get it. 
Um, we're trying to transition into the next phase, which is the elderly population. So those above 80 are being targeted first. But a big part of the discussion right now is basically, do we do we want to move away from that uh, to allow some people in that first phase, that first group, to get the vaccine that haven't received it yet? Zach, do the vaccine makers like Johnson & Johnson coming up uh, but and the existing ones with Moderna and Pfizer, do they have any specific responsibility to sell to the country in which they've developed the vaccine? Or could a country like Denmark come in and say, hey, look, we want to buy every dose of the vaccine that you have. You talk about the shortage of distribution, not just here, but globally. But what are the responsibilities of these drug companies as they make the vaccine? So the drug companies themselves have essentially signed contracts with these other countries. So basically, the United States can't go into Europe and say, we're going to buy all of your vaccine, because you can see where that can be, become a little bit of an issue if yes. that didn't exist. So, so really, when we think about this public-private partnership, um, people are being really held to their word as far as how these contracts are negotiated. So the, the U.S. initially with Operation Warp Speed, we purchased certain allocations right off the bat, even when these things are being trialed for the most promising vaccines. So that way we could roll these out as soon as the data supported them. Um, so it was kind of a conditional purchase, if that makes sense. But yeah. since then, we, we are now trying to work through these contracts to, to uh, purchase more and more and increase our manufacturing. So, you know, if we look at kind of the new administration coming into D.C. right now, one thing that actually could make a difference here, and, and I think the Trump administration was heading this way before, they just hadn't made the move all the way yet, was to use the Defense Production Act to make more vaccine. And so that's actually one thing that they've suggested that they're going to start moving forward with. So we can start using other uh, companies that maybe make chemicals to start putting their resources, time, effort, and energy into helping to produce these vaccines. And does that put us then in competition with other countries that are producing vaccines? I see that China has their version of it. I know that Russia allegedly has their version of it. Is there a bit of an open market then with these different countries? Do they all function the same way you described in terms of Pfizer, Moderna, being able to sell across the globe? Or how, how does this work in terms of the free market globally? So every country has their own regulatory processes in place with the approval of different drugs, or in this case, vaccines. So the United States is known for actually being very strict. And, and so when it comes to taking vaccine from other countries that we haven't been actively studying here, there's quite a bit of a time lag before we would actually get to that point. I know China's been openly critical of the fact that we won't purchase their vaccine. Um, they, they've made some, some statements, I think, as, early, as uh, late as last week here, uh, talking about how they, they don't think that's a, that's a very wise decision. But, but really, our process is in place. We're trying to look at the safest and most effective thing. And so we believe these messenger RNA vaccines have strong data. We do have some other vaccines in play, like the Johnson & Johnson one, the AstraZeneca one, where we'll see where that data goes. Um, we, those will probably be put forward for approval here in a, in a little while, but they use a different kind of mechanism. Hmm. Um, so different regulatory procedures all, all across the board. And Zach, we have just a couple of minutes left, shifting the topic to what we continue to learn about the impact of the virus in people's systems, depending even in some degree what their pre-existing conditions are. But now we're discovering that somebody's gut bacteria might have an impact on how they experience this virus. So tell us about this new research. So all of us have about uh, 32 trillion. I've heard that estimate. Or, or, or <laughs> That's so way too many, Zach. That's way too many. Right. Right. So, there, there's, so there's quite a few. And, and they help us do all sorts of things, one of which is metabolized food. That's probably the one that most people understand. Um, so when you hear about, about taking probiotics, the goal is, of course, to replenish that gut bacteria. We know that people can have 
imbalances in that for a variety of things, including from antibiotics. If you have an antibiotic, actually single dose, it can take up to a year to replenish that gut flora. So antibiotics, nothing wrong with them, of course. We use them for, for the right reasons that that's an okay thing to do, but it does disturb that gut flora. So what we discovered with COVID is some of this data that's coming out is suggesting that there may be a linkage between uh, disturbed gut flora, disturbed gut bacteria, and the severity of the immune response. We seem to see higher levels of cytokines, which are those inflammatory um, messengers that get set around in the presence of an infection. Um, we see higher levels of those in patients who have uh, possibly this disturbed gut flora than in normal than, than in normal individuals. And so what that may mean is everyone's heard about the cytokine storm, which is that primary issue with COVID that we typically run into. Um, it may be associated with this in some way, shape, or form. So should we all run out and grab uh, the one trillion strong bacteria bottles that uh, you can get maybe at your local Whole Foods or some other sort of nutritionist store? <laughs> Yeah, it's a great decision. I would say the data is probably a little inconsistent at that point to maybe jump to that conclusion yet. The other thing we run into is not all probiotics are created the same, and some don't replenish certain kinds of bacteria. So what we can't really say is are you, if you're missing this particular bacteria, remember there's like trillions of them, right? If you're missing this particular one, is that directly correlated with mm. the more severe response? No, well, helpful as always, Zach. We really appreciate the updates, keeping us up to speed on what's happening in COVID, not just in our country, but around the world. Have a great rest of the day. All right, you do the same. Be back uh, for a little bit more here in the uh, second half of hour two with Adam Carrington. We'll talk a bit about politics, and I'm going to ask Adam some questions about how executive orders work and what falls under the category of what a president can do independent of Congress. You know, Paul, you always do such a good job of putting various headlines and, and opportunities on this desk that we can cover. I mean, we're a full-service radio show this morning. We have a yes. job posting available for any listener, although I think you and I might try to apply here during I the might. next yeah. break. But uh, it's a Canadian company is seeking full-time uh, candyologists to serve as taste testers for the company's confections. And get this. Candy Funhouse in Ontario said the remote, so you can do this from home, okay, good. the remote working positions offer... $47 an hour to sample and review some of the company's 3,000 candy and chocolate treats. I cannot imagine a better job than to have candy shipped to your door, and for $47 an hour, you get to taste this all throughout the day. Bring it on. Bring, Bring it on. It on. <laughs> so applications, if you're interested, are being accepted online through February 15th. If you want to text the studio this morning at 877-933-2484, I am sure, Paul Perot, oh, you can direct them. In the, i got other work to do. Well, there's probably a number of people that would be interested for $47 an hour to taste candy. Up next, Adam Carrington will talk about some of the political scenes and updates for this week. Well, traditionally, January is the month when we make resolutions to live better, eat better, turn over a new leaf. So now that we're nearing the end of the month, how are you doing with all those promises? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. On New Year's Day, you might have dreamed about making this a better year for your family. You wanted to take time for family dinners. Maybe you decided to give your teen a little bit more responsibility. It's common to arrive three weeks later miles away from your good intentions. Hey, this parenting thing isn't a one resolution thing. Start over today. In fact, start over every day. You can choose right now to spend time with your family, to encourage responsibility, and to do whatever necessary to help your family grow strong. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. 
And that is familiar music for those of you that listen to the show regularly. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen for not just today, but for the week ahead. And that music means that Adam Carrington, professor of all things political science from Hillsdale College, is joining us to talk about the politics of the day. Good morning, Adam. Good morning, Peter. Glad to be with you. Yeah, it's fun to hear your voice again. And we were chatting off the air a little bit uh, about the political scene. And you made an interesting comment to me where you you said something to the effect of, can we make politics boring again? And we do see a situation of, uh, it's not, clearly the Democrats hold the all the halls of congress as well as the presidency and yet it's it's pretty tight in terms of some of the margins there so do we see things sort of becoming boring again at this point in terms of what kind of policy can get passed in the midst of the current situation well where it could become boring is if the focus becomes policy and 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 i i say boring i i'm you know a political nerd that's why i got into what i'm doing (laughs) so it's always going to be interesting to me but so much of our politics for the last few years has been very identity based where you are be feel feel under attack from the other side in all of your being as being a deplorable or being uh, some other nasty you know phrase to describe people and kind of dehumanize them and therefore i think a lot of people have been into politics because they thought it was their survival and there hasn't been a lot of talk about nuts and bolts policy, actual laws to get passed, actual things to pursue. And and, and I wonder if if Joe Biden being a 40 plus year senator and having spent so much time on uh, uh, in making these sorts of policies and laws, which can be fairly boring and getting done, that maybe we could take the temperature down a little bit. That's that that's a little bit of a hope. I don't think you can do that overnight. But if the focus starts to be what kind of laws should we be passing, and that might actually start to to allow people to not feel they're so existentially threatened every time a particular uh, issue comes up. Yeah, I have talked to a number of people that agree or disagree politically with whatever is going on in Washington, D.C. They do sense just sort of a different vibe. And again, that doesn't mean that that is good or bad, but clearly a new administration has brought in sort of a different feel. And I'm wondering what you see, Adam, could potentially get done in these first parts of the Biden administration that you do see enough support on either side of the aisle where maybe we will carve out some space to do some policy work. Right. I, I mean, one thing to keep in mind is it's been over a decade since Congress has actually even done the normal budget process for passing a normal budget. That's how dysfunctional our legislating's become. And I think if the Biden administration pursues a fairly hard left policy or tries to you know, implement things like uh, a, a climate change legislation or things like that. I, I, I don't think that's going to go anywhere. There's two small margins in the House and Senate. He really had no mandate to govern from a hard partisan perspective. But I do think there are some things that if they tried, and that's a big if, it could actually go somewhere. The, there was some talk about expanding the child tax credit, which on the left uh, is 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 popular among some because it would help alleviate child poverty. It's helpful on the right because there's a support for for, for family values and bolstering the family. So that could be one. Um, infrastructure, uh, I, there was always the joke in the Trump administration that it's infrastructure week again. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but in, in reality, uh, I think you could have some... Um, on the on the on the left, they would like a big new government program to to revamp 
uh, our infrastructure system. But I think on the right, if you made it very American-based, if you made it so that you were privileging American companies, privileging American workers in, in, in the construction projects, the new sort of populist nationalist right could be in favor of it. And I, and I would even put one more in there, something like um, paid maternity leave. Um, which would not be very popular among the small government right. It would not be very popular among parts of the left that want, say, universal uh, daycare. But I still think there's there's a place in the middle where where some of these politicians might say this bolsters the family and is something where the government is forcing you know women to be treated uh, uh, in a different way than they might be treated in the workforce. That could get garner, I think, some some bipartisan support. Certainly be interesting to watch in the weeks ahead what happens there. And Biden can do some things independent of Congress as well by the nature of executive order. And it seemed last week, Adam, that he almost went from the inauguration straight to the Oval Office and then brought out the executive pen and and made a bunch of changes here. I'm curious. I've, I've often wondered what falls under the purview of executive orders. What kind of categories of policy can a president just decide upon independent of Congress? And what does he need to go through Congress with? Because it seems pretty murky waters to try to figure out what can be done and can't be done with the stroke of a pen. Right. Uh, President Obama's famous uh, statement that he was going to use his pen and his phone, right? Yeah, <laughs> Which right. Seemed, seemed a bit unilateral for, for, for our system. And yes, I, I, th- th- there there are there is a legitimate place for executive orders, and they're illegitimate. And, and the legitimate place that often gets overlooked is executive orders are a way of making sure that the 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 one officer that the Constitution explicitly gives control to make sure that the laws are faithfully executed, the president retains that control. He's the only officer that the Constitution directly says he is to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Obviously, no president can walk around himself and enforce every single law across the whole country. That that was ridiculous now. It was ridiculous in 1787 when the Constitution was, was first written. So what happens is uh, there are a lot of officers under the executive that carry out the laws. And what a an executive order at its best, at its most right, does is the president saying, this is how I understand the laws I, I'm supposed to execute, and I am telling the people below me, this is how I expect them to be executed. Now, that's fine. That's just carrying out the law. Where it has become murky and problematic is there are instances where either Congress, I think, has delegated too much of its decision-making to the president, or just the president has generously read what it means to carry out the law and has um, taken executing the law to the stage of almost making it. So Mm -hmm. trying to bypass Congress, trying to get around them. I think an instance like DACA, uh, which was uh, where where, where, um, special protected status was given or deferred deportation status was given to certain dreamers um, in the immigration debate. Uh, Whatever you think of the policy, set aside whether you think that's a good or bad policy, it seemed a lot like an executive order on the part of President Obama that was creating law, not uh, uh, not just 
carrying it out. And I would even say a little similar with President Trump and his his the border wall. Uh, he seemed to stretch what he was able to do when Congress wouldn't give him the money to do it. He he seemed to stretch it. I, I think that what the law said he could do unilaterally. So again, you you could be for or against either of those policies. What's interesting about this is we we have a separation of power system that says there are lawmakers and there are law enforcers. And keeping that separation protects our liberty and makes government more efficient. And to blur those lines, as executive orders badly done can do, poses uh, not just a threat to you know, the president and Congress each being able to have something to do. It poses a threat to our system of government working properly. Mm, super helpful, Adam. Uh, we'll take a short break. When we come back, I want to switch the topic a little bit to some of what we see in the impeachment trial. It's, it's just stunning to me. We seem to still be impeachment, whether you're for or against it. But that word seems to never leave our lexicon when it comes to politics these days. And, and as well, as there's an interesting case that is coming out of Georgia regarding free speech and passing out Christian literature. So I want to get your take on that next year. On Mornings Without Carmen, I'm Peter Kapsner, filling in for the day and the week ahead. Right about 12 minutes before the top of the hour, and we are chatting politics with Adam Carrington. And Adam, before the break, we are talking a little bit about executive orders. One more question on that. Is there a process by which sometimes these temporary executive orders can become enshrined into law so it's not just flipping back and forth with the latest pen of the latest president? The Well, one is to, is they actually, Congress actually passes a law doing so, and sometimes co- presidents will ask to do that. But for the most part, no. One policy to remember that ricochets back and forth each time is that what's called the Mexico policy, whereby uh, it's a ban that Reagan put in place for against uh, uh, funding for abortions and overseas uh, foreign aid. And that's gone back and forth every administration, depending upon whether the administration's pro-life or pro-choice. There are some rare instances where, at least for some people that are already affected by an executive order, they may get some uh, grandfathered when the executive order gets revoked just because of what's uh, a technical legal term called reliance interests. But for the most part, um, executive orders are something that since they're unilaterally done, they can be unilaterally taken away. They're a lot, so they're a lot easier and they're very flashy for presidents to do, but they're also very tenuous. A lot of uh, uh, President Biden's executive orders were merely undoing things President Trump had done. And that's the risk you take with executive orders being so easy to do. They're easily undone as well. Mm, that's interesting. Well, switching our conversation over to some things in the Supreme Court, it's a case that I admit I hadn't seen until we were getting ready to do this show. And it's a case out of Georgia regarding the the decision between free speech and being able to pass out Christian literature. And some of the notes here, it, you're suggesting this could be a very big big decision. So tell us about this case that's going on in Georgia, as well as the potential implications of this case, depending on how it gets argued and decided. Yeah, it it comes out of Gwinnett College in Georgia, and it involved, it started with one student who wanted, as you said, to pass out Christian literature, was at first told, uh, the student was told they could not do it uh, in a particular place because they didn't have a permit. And then when they had the permit, then they were still disallowed to do it for other reasons. And they they sued saying that they had been discriminated against. Their free speech had been discriminated against and, and uh, for not being able to talk about this, not being able to share their faith. 
and the the uh, the the court took this up. Now, if they reach the the merits of this, uh, they reach the actual substance of it. It could be a very big religious case because it would be first determining to the degree to which free speech protects religious liberty, not just the free exercise clause in the First Amendment. And by the way, the, 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 free, the free speech clause gets a lot more protection from the court right now than the free exercise clause does. Um, and then the, 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 the other thing is it would be a big issue about what are students who are Christians allowed to do and be how can they be protected on what seems to be becoming increasingly hostile campuses. So a very practical uh, way. I will say there's a chance it could end up on a technical reason for technical reasons getting not thrown out, but decided on a much narrower ground. Um, since the uh, case started, the college changed its policy. So the court could say, well, it's no longer a live question here. So we're going to just say, well, since the, the, the college changed their policy, there's no case anymore. Um, there's a few other things. So this could end up not really getting to that. But if it does, if the court says there aren't any of these other issues that are big enough to stop it, the decision about free speech for religious speech on college campuses, this could be a very, a very important and big one. Adam, uh, clearly I failed my eighth grade civics class based on what you just said in terms of the difference between free speech and the free exercise related to religious expression. So help me understand the difference between why we might have more liberty in the freedom of speech related to religion versus uh, exercising that, that same religion. Well, th th this might be a distinction between what is and what ought to be. For for a while, the, the it's more what the courts uh, where this gets enforced have been willing to do. Uh, there was a point where the government had a very high burden for anything that you tried to do to stop religious religious uh, exercise or free speech. But starting around 1990, a case called Employment Division v. Smith, the court diverged those two and basically said. If it's a constitutional question, the the um, the court uh, that that on religion, as long as religious people are being treated the same as non-religious people, as long as they're getting equal treatment, then there's no constitutional violation. That that that's different than free speech, where just is your speech being curtailed? It doesn't matter if you're being treated differently. If it's being curtailed, then that's a violation. That's why, by the way, at the national level, we have RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that was at play in the Hobby Lobby Supreme Court cases. Congress stepped in and said, well, if, if the court's not going to enforce um, is not going to treat religious expression or religious speech the same as free speech, um, for constitutional questions, we're going to make it a law that they have to. So that's where that divergence came. I don't think there's actually a difference in the protections constitutionally, but there's been a difference over the last 30 years in how they're protected based on what the courts have said. Man, Adam, I don't know where you were when I was 14 years old, but I really could have used that explanation at that, at that point in my life. Say so we've got uh, one more topic to cover in terms of the impeachment, and I'm just curious your thoughts on this ongoing impeachment trial. I would suspect that some listeners and some people sort of wondered why this was even in process since President Trump was going to be leaving office anyway. Are these about political points being scored? Is there a purpose behind all of this to continue when he's no longer going to be in office? 
Yes, to both. Actually. Okay. Uh, and 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 of course that this is to set aside. I'll just answer the constitutional question of why one would do this. Uh, aside from whether you think he should be convicted, um, yes, th- of course this is being done for partisan reasons. But the other is there are really two punishments that can accompany being convicted for impeachment. One is removal from office. And that's the one people focus on. And and if removal from office was the only punishment you could receive for being impeached, then this would all be a farce. It would be ridiculous. The president's already out of office. It would be just trying to attack his reputation, nothing more. But there is another. Uh, The other punishment is being excluded from all future offices, Mm. being unable to run again. And the president, having lost his reelection bid, is eligible to run for another term. And so this would disqualify him from that. And what that, I think, was meant to protect is there are there could be instances where a president um, as a lame duck uh, uh, would feel he could do anything and not be impeached because um, the trial wouldn't be done before he could leave office or someone who might resign so that he could run for office four years later and avoid impeachment. So that's what I think that punishment was left for. Again, regardless of whether you think he should be convicted, even at this point, um, there is the disqualification from future office. As long as there's still a punishment that could be legitimately administered, then the trial is not constitutionally invalid. It's just a question of whether it's the right punishment for, for this particular accusation. Mm, great stuff as always, Adam. Just appreciate your insight and, and both the technical skill with which you navigate the political scene, but you also make it accessible for all of us that may, like me, have failed their civics classes back in junior high. So have a great rest of the day and week, Adam. Look forward to catching up soon. Thank you. Hope you have a great week hosting. Yeah, thanks so much. We'll take a short break here, wrap up the first hour of the show and preview what's coming up next here on Mornings Without Carmen. Yeah, Adam really has a gift to the show in terms of somebody who's anchored in his faith and our Christian faith as well, and yet can navigate so many of the different political headlines of the day. So if you missed some of that, head back to MyFaithRadio.com and catch what Adam had to say about sort of the first week in office of President Biden. And of course, in the first half of this hour, we talked with Zach Jenkins, who gave us great updates about the COVID situation in our country. Looking forward to hour two here. In just a couple minutes, we're going to start at the top of the hour with Kirsten Watson, who has an amazing ministry for mothers. She also is the wife of former New England Patriots tight end Ben Watson. And Tom Brady of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers found himself, I think, in his 10th Super Bowl uh, coming up here. Is it ninth? I think it's ninth. So we'll definitely ask her about what it's like to be the spouse of an NFL player. And then more importantly, talk about the ministry to mothers that is so needed in our country. So stay with us at the top of the hour. Coming up, we'll be talking with Kirsten Watson. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.